Hey everyone, welcome to another episode of What in the World. My name is Jake Lee, and today we get to listen to a podcast where I interview Mike, Tom, and Dave, our mission pastor, uh, one of our elders here at Elmbrook, as well as one of our field workers, and hear about the trip that they got to go on. And I wouldn't just call it a trip, it's more of a a vision casting experience, um, a connection point, because they got to go to well, actually a couple places around the globe that Elmbrook has been investing in and wanting to see what might God do. And what's really cool as we get into this story, we actually get to hear about three different places. Um, this is going to be a two-part episode. And so that's kind of how we're looking at this, one that has a long history, one that has really taken off, and then one that a chunk of a country that is just starting to see this movement among Muslims happen. And so I'm really excited for you guys to listen to this podcast. It was a lot of fun to sit down with these three men and just hear their stories. And so without any further ado, I want to get you to that interview. But first, we're going to listen to Tom share a cultural blunder. I I had the opportunity to go to India in 1976 and 1977 as a student under a UW program. And I tried to be culturally tuned in, but frankly, I'm an oafish American, didn't know how to do it. And so I saw people wearing lungis and I bought one. It's a wonderful lounging thing into an American eye. Might look like a guy wearing a dress, right? Well, I thought I was gonna be so cool and hip, I'd wear it to school. Only to realize that the lower, the lowest class people, the people who ride rickshaws, the people who are working in mm-hmm. the, in construction projects and so forth, they wear a lungi outside the home because maybe they only have a couple of things to wear. You would never wear it to school. Somehow my eyes had completely missed that distinction in my uh, small American brain. So some kind person had to instruct me as to how you go and engage in being culturally appropriate. I really like um, how you know, you are in some sense trying to embrace the culture. All of a sudden you're wearing something that you just wouldn't wear to school. Yeah, there's tons of mistakes you make. And the reason why I push so hard and why I want to have this be part of the podcast and conversations, I think it normalizes the fact that when we cross cultures, when we are following God to places that we haven't been to before, we make mistakes and it's okay. And we learn from them, Mm -hmm. we move on, and we try to do better next time. And so. Try not to wear a, a lungi, is that what it's called? Yeah. But, and the funny part is that that same lesson is absolutely appropriate here. As we get into a post-Christian era, mm. we start speaking and Christians speak, we make cultural blunders. Oh, yeah. And so we have to take those lessons and I think apply them when we're walking around in Heartland or Oconomowoc or Waukesha County. That's a very good application. Yeah, do it here. It's not just overseas. I think the key thing for me is just that we want to have an attitude to be cultural learners. Yeah, we just go in there, position ourselves. And people that we've worked with all over Asia are so gracious mm. and warm and yeah. willing if they see we have an attitude to learn, especially language. Language is a bit more challenging because I can make lots of mistakes with mm-hmm. that as well. <laughs> and yet people see our hearts. They know that we genuinely love them we, and welcome us in. So I... I think it's a great experience when Wayne is to, yeah, I can make mistakes. It's okay. And we'll learn through it. Yeah, that humble attitude of a learner is really the key. It's the same thing, like you said, stateside. Like, I, you want to connect with people who are younger than you, older than you. If you come across with an attitude of humility, it doesn't matter what you're crossing. If it's an age cultural barrier, if it's an overseas one, people pick up on that and then they're willing to forgive mistakes and help you learn. Well said. Well said. 
So now moving into the main part of this conversation, I want to kick it off to Mike, who's across the table. Mike, can you kind of give us an overview of what this conversation is going to be about today and the trip that you all um, were part of? Sure. Yeah. Um, I came on staff here at Elmberg about three and a half years ago uh, as the pastor of missions and mobilization. And when I looked at a map of where our 72 field workers were around uh, the world, there was one country that was noticeably absent from that map. And and if you're going to talk about unreached people groups, and when I mean when I say unreached people groups, these are distinct groups of people with their own language, their own culture. Um, you know, they they keep people like them within the group, and people who don't uh, who don't speak their language are outside of the group. So there's about sixteen thousand unique, distinct people groups in the world today, and there's about six thousand of them that have no access to the message of Jesus whatsoever. We call these people unreached people groups. Um, there's one country in the world that has 2,000 of the 6,000 unreached people groups. So roughly a third of the unreached people groups are in one country alone, mostly in the north of this country. And we didn't have anybody there. We didn't have any access there at all. And so I tapped Dave who's kind of a regional director uh, over this whole area and said, can you help us mm. to engage with this area of the world? And, um, and he did. He's, he was already in the process of working in that area, and he had connected with this group uh, called Vision 5-9. So Vision 5-9 is a worldwide group that focuses specifically on helping uh, the people from Islamic backgrounds understand who Jesus is. Mm-hmm. And um, and so they do that in a variety of places. And so there are three key guys from this specific country that are the representatives for this organization there. And they're doing it. Um, there's, there's a lot of good work in this country uh, amongst the dominant religion of the country, but there's very little work that's being done uh, for people who um, follow Islam. So I think this trip, we had already made some really good connections with this group. We had prayed with them. We had met with them over Zoom. This trip, or part of this trip, was to really connect with these guys, meet them firsthand, um, and to get to know their stories a little bit better. So this is kind of the trip. So is this kind of, this realization that Elmbrook, for all of the field workers we've sent out, all of the areas of the world we're involved in, there is still, or was still, this area that, Strategically, when you're talking about the Great Commission, you're talking about people who've never heard about Jesus is a huge has a huge need, mm-hmm. and an area that we just weren't as a church really involved in, and so that's what led you to reach out to Dave, and so then this trip was really connecting with the people who are really boots on the ground working in this area. Yeah, and that's the best way to do it in this country. This country is is an area where where you know gringos like us are not going to go over there and live and serve and you know see a lot happen. The best way really to do it is is to interact with people who know the culture, are part of the culture, and are nationals themselves. Well, you're talking about the cultural barriers we opened up with. A lot of those are removed. Not all of them, but a lot of them are removed when you're talking locals doing it rather than mm-hmm. you know us coming in. But that's the big picture of what you guys were doing. You're meeting these individuals. <coughs> but Tom and Dave, whoever wants to jump in first, feel free. But can you share a story or help us understand 
what was this trip? Like, what was it like? Help us start to understand what you guys did. Well, for me, um, I was getting my uh, at least college education in missiology. Dave had invited me on this trip, and Dave and his wife have been engaged in cross-cultural uh, Christ following for 40 years. In fact, I helped celebrate that uh, with them earlier this or late last year. And so I went with Dave as a guest, knowing that um, Elmbrook had a touch not only with a country that, uh, that we were talking about just a moment ago with Mike, but also um, with a nearby country where we had also made a huge investment over several mm-hmm. years. And so we were going to visit both of those countries. And I went largely to listen. I was not asked to make a presentation. I wasn't going to use my skills as a counselor, what have you. Um, And as I watched, not only was Dave there, but another member of his really terrific organization with just the same kind of pedigree and a a PhD in Islamic studies Mm. from a world-renowned university was there, and then a a world-class executive whose heart just beat with unreached people groups was there, and a a lawyer, um, a uh, top-notch world-beating law firm was there. In other words, guys who had not only passion, but intellect and means and a real strategic hope for places where Jesus had not been proclaimed, for groups where Jesus had not been proclaimed. And for me, it was eye-opening and just incredible to hang around with, first of all, uh, Dave, and then later when Mike joined us and Michael undersell himself. But what a wonderful ambassador you are, Mike, for Christ. It was just a blast to be with you two guys and some of the others. I mean, the big picture for South Asia, as Mike was saying, is it is... What Joshua Project says is the epicenter of unreached peoples. Mm -hmm. And unreached peoples, as you were saying, Mike, what does it mean? It means there are no followers of Jesus there making Christ's love known. They don't, there is no scripture available. There are no churches. Mm -hmm. There's no one there actually actively living out. What does it mean to be a follower of Christ Mm -hmm. demonstrating the reality of God's kingdom? And it's hard to grasp or to think as Mike said, that there's you know over 2,000 of these people groups. One of them are called the Sheikh in South Asia. I think there's a total number of 215 million. It, it's just a massive, massive. massive. Hmm. And yet um, we're talking about just thousands, a few thousands of people who have responded and, are, and, and they are people. I, you know, somebody asked me once, why aren't more people in the Islamic world coming? to faith and becoming followers of Jesus. Sometimes people think it's because, you know, people in that part of the world are hard or aggressive or radicalized, but actually it's not the case. So the number one reason is because they've never met a follower of Christ. Mm. They haven't had the opportunity to know who is Jesus really, what is this message all about and what does he actually come to do? And I think, you know, I've had actually one person say to me, um, is actually an Iranian who said, you know, the reason I'm following Jesus now is because I just easily could compare the message. One was about love. Mm-hmm. The other actually was something else. And, you know, Jesus' message of this revolution of love. But it's it's just the unreached people's nature, as Mike was saying, that's driving us, that we know it's God's heart beating that his his name be known, that people would have the opportunity to know who he is. But there's about one full-time national uh, local field worker for every 400,000 
of people in these unreached people groups. So it is a huge, huge burden and challenge and why we're out there visiting and saying, hey, how can we come alongside you guys and partner, support, build capacity, serve, wash your feet? You know, how can we come along and, and help? I like to say it this way, Dave. If, if you live in an unreached people group, and again, in this country, there's 2,000 of them, some of them are very large, like you said, but if you live in an unreached people group, you can be born, you will live your entire life, and you will die, and you will not hear the word Jesus spoken even once. You'll live, you'll live your entire life, and you'll never hear the word Jesus. I have a friend named Saji, and he leads a, a ministry to this, this country. When he goes to these towns and villages, he'll go up to someone and he'll say, he'll say do you know Jesus? And they'll look at him quizzically, and then they'll say, mm, I don't think he lives here. They said, what, they, why don't you try the next village over? Uh, on the other hand, um, while we talk about this huge picture, what is uh, going on there seemed to me to be strategic and important, but it's all at the one-on-one -on -one discipleship level. Mm -hmm. The visits that we had to centers where illiterate children were being taught oftentimes by teachers who are not yet believers. They weren't chosen as children or chosen as teachers because of their belief system. It was because people are reaching out to a need with love. And in these centers, and one of them I remember well, uh, in Bangladesh, where, uh, which was one of the countries we spent time in, but these eager children and wonderful teachers, and on the wall was written in Bengala the word Jesus Christ. That was something the teacher herself had done because she had been introduced to Jesus through loving people. And she was now exploring a relationship with Jesus. And no doubt she and others who are on the cusp of, or maybe she'd crossed the line of faith, I don't know, they're going to have this influence on these children, these children's families. It's wonderful, but it really is one-on-one. -on -one. I mean, there's not some sort of a big auditorium where you try to get 500 people in and Preach the gospel. You better live the gospel or it's not going to work. And as Tom said, I mean, Elmbrook has had a wonderful investment almost for 11 years in mm -hmm. Bangladesh in projects related to rescuing kids from being trafficked, from helping young women who have become child brides and then fistula patients find a new life. And it's there's just a long... Told a list of untold stories of people's lives, as Tom just said, being changed and are being changed currently and making a significant difference at a very grassroots level in communities that when we talk about poverty, for example, one of the places that Tom and I were had a chance to go to is in an area near the river. And so unfortunately, flooding comes almost every year. And so sometimes you'll have whole villages just washed away. Mm. Um, but these are day laborers, people earning $2, $3 a day. You know, it's just when I say the figures, it's just, you, you, it's beyond comprehension because it's such a different world. Yeah, tomorrow's meal is not guaranteed at $2 a day. And so we, one of our staff, you know, was surveying the whole area saying, where should I set up some new projects? We're going to start some schools for kids where they have no opportunity to get education. And he discovers this community down by the river, 10,000 people living uh, in a flood area. 10,000 people. There are no schools for kids there. It's just mm -hmm. 
you know, can imagine our community here. Can you, it's, it's just hard to get around. And then, you, so we walk about an hour and a half. We actually wade through a small river. Was was kind of fun, wasn't it, Tom? It's, I think it's a really large river. <laughs> it was a large that river. day it was small. <laughs> it was low. And low. And we finally get there, and here we find the head of the government in that area has come out to meet us. Uh, because we can't re- visit all the schools, some of the teachers walk three hours just to meet us, shake our hands, just mm-hmm. to say thank you. Mm-hmm. And, and you know, it's the uh, only thing I can say is that it's a powerful demonstration for God's kingdom when you're practically investing in people's lives. And we're just visiting for a couple of hours. Our staff there, he, I mean, he's there every month. He's building these relationships. He's you know pouring out God's love in practical ways. But that was probably one of the highlights for me was just to see the impact we're making. And, um, you know, and one of the women who's finally learning how to read and write, you know, what's the biggest accomplishment for you? That you've learning to read and write. Mm-hmm. Well, I can write my name now. <laughs> I mean, you just we just yeah. can't get. Yeah. What's it like to not have the opportunity to go to school? Yeah, these centers double up not only for the children but for the for the women. And in a shame honor culture, as I learned from these great missiologists, these great cultural aware people, shame comes with not even being able to write your name. It's it takes the idea of very low empowerment for women to begin with, and it gives them a voice. It gives them opportunity to see themselves as they might be blessed by a God. These women couldn't imagine that they are important enough to be blessed by God without this kind of one-on-one instruction. So it's interesting, as you guys are sharing kind of about your trip, is we obviously have very different perspectives each you are approaching this from. So first off, if I'll just go with Tom and Dave, like, Dave, you're going overseas, you're checking in an area that um, you've been working in or have, have had influence in for a long period of time to check in on the workers, the locals, see what's going on. But it's an area that Elmerick has invested 11 years into and seeing um, seeing the schools, seeing people being able to write their names, uh, these one-on-one relationships, like you said, Tom, like it's this very intentional relational ministry that over 11 years is having this very incredible impact and Tom you're doing it as a learner and that's kind of like that's one side of your trip and then what Mike introduced us into was the other country which is really we're much more on the other end of it or we're more on the beginning end that yes uh, of course we are caring about all of the those who have never heard the name of Jesus those who are unreached but there's also huge amounts of poverty in this area as well so it's very interesting that your trip saw something that was 11 years of work and the other is, at least for Elmbrook's standpoint, very much on the infancy level. And if, if you don't mind, I, I do want to say thank you. Mm. There are hundreds and thousands of givers to Elmbrook and its ministry over the years that allowed me to go as a current Elmbrook elder mm. and say thank you to the men and women who are on the ground Working, And I was surprised they thought that that was interesting or maybe even important that someone shows up. For me, it's important because I'm learning how not just to minister in another culture, but in our own mm. culture, which I think is, we're gonna, we actually have a lot more to learn from the cultures that are developing, perhaps, mm-hmm. than we have to teach. Uh, but say thank you, thank you for letting me to go as, a, as, a, as an elder and a representative of Elmbrook. 
Yeah, and we were while we were there, and at least in Bangladesh, we had the privilege of being a part of their fiftieth anniversary celebration. So it, it's you know looking at all the milestones and all that God has been doing, as you're saying, Tom. We just had the opportunity to celebrate and give thanks, and Elmbrook's been a big part of it. In the neighboring country, I have to just add, Elmbrook has been very involved for sure. decades in lots of different ways. Um, but I think the difference right now is we're saying, hey, let's focus especially on those people who really have no opportunity. 99% of all ministry that's going on in that neighboring country is focused among people who still, there. there's a lot of need. Um, but the uh, people of, uh, of this country... Um, 17% of the population are following Islam, but probably only 1% of all efforts across the whole country would be focused on them. So we really feel it's a high priority. While we were there, we had the opportunity to visit one outreach center that was doing a similar ministry, reaching out to kids from very, very impoverished communities and also women, again, who are neglected, oppressed, set aside. And to meet with these women and to see them uh, being as, and like uh, Tom was saying in the other country, that they have this sense of dignity, a sense of discovering value, freedom. Actually, they would say that one opportunity each day or often in the week to meet together is just to come to that place to learn literacy, or get literacy or training. And it's interesting, not just illiteracy, another word is innumeracy meaning you've never learned how to count. Mm. And, and so it's a really, really significant, empowering thing to, to, you know, you can get on a bus, you can count how much you're earning. And it was just a thrill, I think, for all of us to see these women, some of them just the joy on their faces, mm. and they're experiencing mm. it. They're feeling and experiencing God's love. Of course, as they're interested and open, our staff are sharing more about why we're doing this and who Jesus is, you know. But it's not a quid pro quo. quo. You're, you're, we are just serving them and reaching out and they're saying, hey, we love you, God loves you, and if you want to know more, we're here to share about that. But you mentioned counting, Dave, and there is a cost that these men and women have to count. One of the stories that really um, caught me to the core was a young man who told it with a smile that lit up a room on his face, but he talked about how his father had become a secret Christian in his village, and he then, four or five years into that, shared that with the family, which really didn't thrill the family. Um, but it was worse when he decided he must share it with the village. Visited um, by the local population, frankly, was threatened with um, both their, their home being destroyed as well as their lives being threatened. And he says through a mir miraculous intervention of the Holy Spirit, that didn't happen. That was one 15 years ago. Now that village has 40 believers that can gather together and worship. It's not easy. And they're convinced that there are other, quote, secret believers who are just not quite yet willing to count the cost. And counting is a big deal. It's hard, not because the, the faith might be so important necessarily, but because the cultural cost is really high to mm. break out of that mold, and that calls for prayer and, and courage. Yeah, I mean, you guys are dealing, are talking about a context where obviously persecution, we hear that word thrown around a lot, but it's a very real and very tangible thing in the areas of the world you're talking about. 
but also it's just it is so tied up culturally like other beliefs other religions can be so cultural that to break away from them isn't just potentially persecution it's ostracization like it is being completely cutting off anything you've ever known before and how do you how do you count that cost and that's a big deal and what I loved also what you just shared Tom is like when you're looking at the long term and that's what I think we should keep turning to you see growth you see very small seeds planted you see very few believers start but then you see growth mm-hmm. and Dave thanks for correcting me before Elmbrook has had the country we're not naming we have had a long-term investment but we have not had a long-term investment in a very specific part of it focusing on that region that is very concentrated with unreached peoples mm-hmm. but that doesn't mean we haven't been in that country for many decades and there's wonderful ministries going on and, and I think the thing we recognize is God Jesus lots of different groups in lots of different ways he has the bigger picture, and I, I recently was reminding myself, you know, when the Lord looks at us, he doesn't see churches or mission or, or organization. There is still just one church, mm. <laughs> you know? We forget. <laughs> yeah, and, and I thought, you know, but that Rev, uh, Vision 5.9 that Mike mentioned, it comes from Revelation 5.9. It's the vision that people from every kindred, tribe, tongue, and nation one day together we're all going to be mm-hmm. worshiping mm-hmm. before the Lord. And I think that one of the things that, that Mike alluded to, I think that's come out, we have this just amazing privilege to come alongside and build, build friendships, partnerships, similar to Elmbrook has done for many decades, but it's just with new people, with others, and how do we um, serve, how we can come along and empower. We are still, and there is definitely a place for Elmbrook Church to be significantly involved and in, in serving and help coming alongside. And to be honest, it would be wonderful if there were a couple of people we could send out there. I don't know mm-hmm. if it's too late for you and Mike and I to do this or Tom, but maybe <laughs> not. You know, we just have to say, Lord, we're available. But uh, there is amazing growth. There are amazing opportunities right now. We really do feel we're on the cusp of, of significant growth and breakthroughs but we do feel we have to put resources there. So I'm going to pause our conversation now in part one, and we'll continue this and wrap up this conversation in part two. But I just wanted to sit on a couple things for just a moment. Uh, First, we heard Dave talking about that the issue isn't that those in Muslim context are just so hard-hearted or so radicalized. The issue is just that many have never heard They've never heard the name of Jesus. They don't know about him. They've never had access to people who follow him. And when we talk about UPGs or unreached people groups, people who will be born, live their life and die and never once hear the name of Jesus, for the amount of workers the church has sent out, there is one person to reach every 400,000 around the globe. And when you think about that, how is one person supposed to reach 400,000? And so it's a very small number. It's a huge burden that still is laid at the church's feet. Uh, God asks us to go out and make disciples of all nations. And yes, it is something that he will accomplish. We know that, which, and at the end of the podcast, we talked about Revelation 5, 9, that is going to happen. But are we going to be part of it? Are we going to step into this? And so we have this uh, unique opportunity to potentially be part of what God is doing and the biblical narrative that is continuing today, culminating in Revelation 5-9, where we're worshiping before the feet of Jesus. 
And so we have this super beautiful opportunity. How do we step into this in a country that has so many unreached peoples in a very small area? And we now are praying and seeking that God would guide us as we step into that. So if you enjoyed this conversation and want to hear a little bit more, tune in for part two. This has been What in the World.